Hello, everyone. Welcome back uh, to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me can connect as we and what that means for all of us. I am your host, as always, JDK Winnikin. You can find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com, or on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should be able to find me quite easily. would love to hear from you, chat with you, and just see what's on your mind. Uh, this week, what's on a lot of our minds is, of course, what is happening in Ukraine, and that is what we're going to talk about today uh, on what is episode number 60 of this show for February 28th, 2022. Uh, before I jump into that uh, and what you have come to expect on this show, let me make sure I thank our sponsor, Airway Science for Kids. Airway Science for Kids is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. And they do so by not only providing in-house programs for youth of all ages, but also by facilitating relationships with governmental entities, educational institutions, uh, various companies, uh, uh, mental and emotional health outlets to uh, help uh, students better connect with themselves, better connect with their families and with their communities. If you'd like to know about the extraordinary work that they do, you can check out uh, their website, airside.org, A-I-R-S-C-I-I.org, or you can reach out to them directly for information by emailing info at airside.org. So thanks to them. Um, the title of today's show is simply Ukraine Matters, um, or Ukraine Matters, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit about it. I received a lot of requests and inquiries over the last week Um from a number of people, friends, uh, some listeners, some readers, uh, about what exactly is going on and where did all this come from and what are the historical roots of all this. And those are certainly very big questions, and I only have a short amount of time in which to address some of those today. Uh, But I am going to address some of them to the best of my ability. And uh, to go with that, the haiku for today's episode goes like this. Behind today's blood roars a wave of history we cannot run from. Behind today's blood roars a wave of history we cannot run from. Uh, There's an enormous amount of historical root in what is going on uh, in what is going on in Ukraine with the Russian invasion that is now in its fifth day as of this recording. And, uh, of course, there's a lot. It's dominating uh, social media. It's dominating news channels. It's dominating conversations uh, among many people in many different places. And it can be really hard to kind of cut through the noise um, and to tell what is actually happening and what is not. The common threads that have uh, reached me or have I've noticed in these conversations and questions I've been getting, uh, here are the things that I notice the most. Uh, an acute sense of overwhelm uh, from information as well as what does it all mean. Uh, there, I've, I've seen quick judgment of one side or the other or what's going to happen or what will happen or who's responsible or who's not. Uh, there's a palpable fear of escalation, right, particularly nuclear escalation of this, and big questions as to why would Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, do this and why would he do it now? And then also more recently, uh, how do we explain the ferocity not only of the invasion itself, but the unexpected power of the Ukrainian resistance? Uh, And how do we tell fact from fiction in the news coverage? So I thought I would start addressing that today. Um, by giving just a little bit of background, historical background on the region, and also just some thoughts to ponder, some things to think about uh, going forward that maybe will be helpful. The first thing, as far as news coverage goes, uh, I would encourage everybody to continue to take deep breaths at whatever it is 
uh, that you're hearing one way or the other, whether the news is something that sounds good or something that doesn't sound so good. Uh, it is very, very hard in the midst of an active war zone to know exactly what's going on, who's doing what, what is accurate in terms of um, what forces are doing, how many people have been killed, all those types of things. Uh, every side in this conflict has interest in putting out their um, information. Some of it might be truthful, some of it might be not. And it's really hard to discern all of that uh, in the midst of it happening. It's going to take time for that stuff to play out. So regardless of prognostications, which is the thing we tend to do when we don't have any answers of what is going to happen or not going to happen, I would encourage everybody to take a deep breath and recognize that we don't know what is going to happen. <laughs> and um, and that's just, that's just how this goes. Uh, and that can be tough to sit with at first. However, that's why I think having a little more awareness of where this has come from, maybe some things to think about, can actually be helpful and at least help you breathe a little bit better through all of this. Uh, whether we like it or not, we're in the present all the time. <laughs> and uh, we cannot accurately predict on a consistent level what's going to happen coming next. And historians aren't very good at doing that anyway. Historians um, already debate what happened in the past and why it happened in the past and what it means for the present. And that's always debatable. Uh, and that's with stuff that we actually know. Uh, the things that we don't know about the future, we just simply can't predict. Uh, historians don't have a crystal ball, just like nobody else does. That said, history can provide context. And in context, can find some meaning, maybe even some comfort, maybe even some ability to reflect, or if, at least, if nothing else, to step back and stay a little calmer and keep some perspective. Okay, so uh, where should we start with this? This... The situation is continually fluid, and Vladimir Putin decided to send Russian forces into a country that is the size of Texas. It's the second largest country in all of Europe. It is uh, in the top five in uh, output in a number of different agricultural and, uh, I suppose you could say, manufacturing categories, depending on what we're talking about. Uh, it's also a country, Ukraine, that has struggled since its uh, independence in 1991 after the fall of the Soviet Union uh, to produce a stable government for itself and then also a, a dynamic, growing, diversified economy. And those have been struggles that in part have had to do with divisions among Ukrainians and also because of the difficulty Ukraine has faced in dealing with post-Soviet Russia and for the almost the entirety of that period, with the exception of right after the fall of uh, Soviet Union for about 10 years, Vladimir Putin has been the person uh, pulling the levers uh, in Russia as far as that's concerned. And it's worth noting here at the outset, Vladimir Putin is on record of saying two things that I think really matter here. First, that he has said, he said in a speech, that the biggest calamity, the biggest disaster of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. That's a big statement when you consider that this that same century had World War II, which killed 27 million of his fellow Russians. There was also the Holocaust in the midst of that. You had all the Soviet crimes of the Gulag, the terror famine in Ukraine, which we'll talk about in 1932, as well as the First World War and a number of other things. That's the first thing he said that matters here. And the second thing that matters is he's also on record for saying truly, from a historical point of view, Ukraine has never been an independent nation. He truly believes this. So as far as that's concerned, those are two important things to keep in mind. Okay, But what I'd like to do here is I'd like to sort of frame how all of this came about by talking about one particular real-life person in general, but maybe also a second, depending on time. 
And if, and if I run out of time today, I'm going to continue it next week because we'll still be talking about this next week. I'd like to tell you the story as a way of doing this of a woman, a woman I have met, and her name is Oksana. I'm just going to use her first name. And today, um, Oksana would be 81 years old. So she was born in 1940, and she was born just outside of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, which everybody is familiar with uh, these days from watching the news. And 1940, of course, was a, uh, a pretty important year in what was happening in Europe. Oksana's parents had lived through the First World War as children. And during the First World War and for the previous couple of centuries, what we now know as Ukraine had been part of the Russian Empire. Well, that ended in World War I when the Russian Empire collapsed and eventually Russia was taken over by the Bolshevik Revolution of Vladimir Lenin and others. And a few years later, after the Russian Civil War, the Soviet Union was created. Well, in the middle of that turmoil, uh, when the Russian Empire fell apart, Ukraine became independent for the first time. It had been a nation that had been hotly contested in terms of who was going to control it. Was it Poland in previous centuries? Was it Russia? Would they be independent on their own? And because of that, there was a lot of historical connection uh, between those three groups of people, a lot of social tension between them ethnically, particularly moving into the 19th and 20th centuries, and uh, a lot of nationalistic fervor <laughs> in Ukraine and elsewhere uh, because of that. Well, World War I, Oksana's parents, who were children, survived that. And uh, a few years, though, after the war ended, when Lenin consolidated his control in the Soviet Union, the new Red Army rolled back into Ukraine to try to reclaim it and to bring it into the Soviet Union. And to tell a long story short, the eastern portion of Ukraine was brought back into the Soviet Union. The western portion ended up part of Poland. Okay? And so in the midst of that, a number of Ukrainians who were not fans of being part of the Russian Empire again, uh, Ukrainian nationalism continued to stir. And it became a problem uh, for Soviet authorities as we moved into the late 20s and early 1930s. Of course, by then it was Joseph Stalin who was in charge of the Soviet Union. And... In the 1920s and 1930s, he embarked on a massive effort to collectivize all the private property, in particular all the farms, inside the Soviet Union. And his effort to do that in Ukraine met with significant Ukrainian resistance, in part because collectivization was just a violent process. It was forcibly using military and secret police to take away private property and farmland. But there was also a strong undercurrent of Ukrainian nationalism, anti-Russianism behind this. Stalin... Uh, as he tended to do, decided to crush it. And in what is known to history now as the Holodomor, or the terror famine, killed millions of Ukrainians because he could. Uh, he deliberately starved them out and killed millions. People debate how many go back and forth. Uh, but seeing as Ukraine's population in 1932, the year of the terror famine, was estimated at 32.7 million, the low number is 10% of that population died. It's one of the biggest, um, biggest, I, I would call it a genocide, some people argue it wasn't, uh, of the 20th century, right up there with the Holocaust and the other ones that we know a little bit better. But of course what that did, it did break Ukrainian nationalism for a time and it kept Ukraine inside the Soviet Union. And Oksana's parents survived this as well, which is remarkable. The stories of the terror famine are horrible. Um, some of the worst things you can ever imagine. In fact, when I used to teach about the course, I had to, <laughs> to sort of give a heads up uh, to students and sharing details because it was tough to hear. Uh, and so this has been a part of the Ukrainian experience with Russia for a very long time. And Oksana grew up hearing quiet stories 
about this because you weren't supposed to talk about it out loud um, in the Soviet Union, period. But she grew up hearing about it. And while her parents survived, a number of her uncles and aunts and cousins did not. And that was very common. Uh, if you talk to any Ukrainians who lived at the time, they lost people in, in that famine. Now, fast forward a few years later in 1939, the year before Oksana was born, Western Ukraine ended up coming back into the Soviet Union because, of course, that year in 1939, with World War II brewing, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union made a deal that they weren't going to fight each other in Eastern Europe, and in fact, they were going to split what was then Poland in half. The Germans were going to take the Western half. The Soviets would then occupy the Eastern half, which included the Eastern portion, or the Western portion, excuse me, of Ukraine. And so that whole part of the country was brought into the Soviet Union. And a year later, Oksana was born in Kiev. She did not really remember, obviously, the outbreak of the war in Eastern Europe when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in June of 1941. She wasn't even two years old yet. But certainly it left a mark on her family. Um, the first thing she does remember is uh, being taken from the house that she uh, grew up in because both her parents were killed. Um, her father, as best she knows, was shot by the Nazis. Um, her mother, no one knows really what happened, but was found uh, dead a number of days later. And she ended up in an orphanage uh, for the duration of the war. And when the Germans arrived in Ukraine, they initially were treated, re were treated as liberators by many people in Ukraine precisely because of what Stalin had done in the 1930s and because of longstanding anti-Russian sentiment among Ukrainians. But, of course, then the Nazis revealed themselves to be who they were, which means they saw the Ukrainians as secondary people and were, had no trouble murdering them in the hundreds of thousands, too. And that led to, in some parts of Ukraine, a resistance against the Nazis, but other Ukrainians collaborated with the Germans. And in that entire maelstrom of war, uh, not only were hundreds of thousands, millions of Ukrainians and Russians and Germans killed, but almost all of Ukraine's 1.5 million Jews were killed in that process as well. And so Oksana, as a young girl, was growing up amidst a bloodbath. And it was decidedly personal. And it's worth remembering that Oksana's story is not uncommon, right? That's a big part of where we're going with this. Now, when the war ended, it was the greatest victory, of course, in the history of the Soviet Union. And the Great Patriotic War, as it was called uh, by Stalin and by many others, became sort of the defining moment, not only of the Soviet Union as a nation, but supposedly of the rightness and ultimate triumph of communism. They, of course, had slayed the Nazi lion and uh, were more powerful than ever before and had the largest land army in human history in 1945. Um, but, of course, they'd had to roll back over Ukraine again to do that in 1944 and into 1945, and they gave Ukraine no option but to stay in the Soviet Union and eventually... Ukrainian socially, social socialist, Soviet Socialist Republic, excuse me, was created to go alongside this. And so Oksana, in an orphanage, grew up under this and was not adopted until 1952 um, when she was 12 years old. And she was adopted uh, by a family that took her to live near the city of Kharkov, which, of course, has been in the news lately because it's been um, getting shelled mercilessly from what it looks like by Russian forces. Um, and so she ended up moving there. And there she went to uh, Soviet-run uh, schools where the stories she heard were about the glories of the, uh, not just the Soviet victory in World War II and the rightness of the Soviet experiment, but were really put from a Russian point of view because the Soviets were really pushing under Stalin, particularly at the end of his life and then after, 
a very Russian view of how Soviet history had gone. Russia was at the center. And for many Ukrainians, this rankled. And Oksana, having suffered directly at the hands of Russians, had a lot of antipathy towards them. And that didn't stop. Even as she got older, she married uh, at 20 years old, a low-level communist uh, party official in the Ukraine, uh, and struggled to make ends meet for most of her life. She had three children, two sons and a daughter. Uh, And the first son ended up being killed in the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1980, uh, a war that he didn't want to be a part of, uh, but felt he had to be a part of. And of course, many Ukrainians fought in the Red Army uh, because they had to. Uh, She had a daughter who a handful of years later committed suicide uh, when she had refused the advances of another local party member in Kharkov and had been targeted uh, for harassment and uh, had been imprisoned and um, had undergone some very unpleasant experiences and ended up committing suicide. And her youngest son, Bodan, uh, was born in 1971, and he, is, uh, he was her only surviving son. And no, I do not know where Bodan is. Um, I wonder <laughs> where he is. But nevertheless, the reason I tell you this story is because from Oksana's point of view, steeped in her very history, and there are millions of people like her, steeped in her very history was an awareness that Ukraine's ability to be independent had strongly been denied by successive Russian dictators, Russian leaders, and Ukrainians had constantly felt that they were either under direct control or under undue influence and pressure by Russia. Now, in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, remember what Putin called the greatest calamity of the 20th century, when that happened, Oksana was jubilant. She was 51 years old had never dreamed she would be able to live part of her life in freedom and was hoping that this was the beginning of such for her and for her son. Now, what happened from that period on until today is Ukraine did struggle, as I pointed out at the beginning of the show, to create a stable government and to figure out how to build a diversified economy that could be largely free of Russian influence and then also greatly more connected to the European Union in the West. And that has been the crux of the challenge to this point. From Vladimir Putin's point of view, and so we have Oksana's life on one side, and from Vladimir Putin's point of view on the other side, born in 1952 in Leningrad, um, had some family history with, the, with uh, both the Great Patriotic War as well as with the rise of communism. He had a grandparent who was a chef for both Lenin and Stalin, supposedly. Uh, but when he moved into his schooling, and of course, which was all under... Uh, Soviets, uh, Soviet systems of education, he learned about the greatness of the Soviet Union, the greatness of the Soviet victory, the greatness of the, the Soviet experiment. And he steadily moved into, as he became a teenager and a young man, working for intelligence, uh, the KGB, uh, in particular, where he worked uh, at first on keeping an eye on foreign diplomats and foreign visitors uh, to the Soviet Union, so the foreign office. And over time, kind of worked his way up as uh, an effective apparatchik, if you will. When the Soviet Union fell, he kind of skillfully maneuvered his way into important positions. He eventually worked for the the mayor of St. Petersburg after the fall of the Soviet Union, became the deputy mayor, and steadily moved up the ranks in Boris Yeltsin's government, Boris Yeltsin, the first uh, post-Soviet president of Russia. And he made a name for himself that way. When he became uh, the president of Russia, in 1999 for the first time, 
Uh, things didn't look so good for him at first. He, he, he had thought that communism had passed everyone by. It had proven itself to, uh, to be ineffective. But he was very much a Russian, uh, very proud of his country, proud of its accomplishments in the Second World War. And he felt, as many Russians did, humiliated by its defeat in the Cold War. And he developed a sense, a sensibility, that the rest of the world was out to humiliate Russia from that point on. That it wasn't just good enough to win the Cold War, but he needed to have his, they needed to have their noses rubbed in it too. And there's a lot of debate about whether that's actually true or not. Uh, but as president, um, over time, he steadily became more autocratic and authoritarian to the point that eventually, as most of us know now, he destroyed all the independent press in Russia. So the only press that you hear from there is what is state-sanctioned. He has openly, well, not even openly, I shouldn't say openly, he's clandestinely killed his enemies <laughs> um, uh, when he has thought it was necessary. And, of course, he has repressed dissent all over the country uh, for a very long time. And he has consistently believed that since the end of the Cold War, and it's still the same way today, the rest of the world, particularly NATO countries and the United States, are out to humiliate Russia. And the big concern that he has with Ukraine is not necessarily that Ukraine might join NATO. That's one factor. But the fact that Ukraine is drifting and has drifted and has wanted to join the European Union economic bloc there have been talks about it joining NATO before. Uh, that's concerning. Not because, in my opinion, what, for what, what some people say, how would we feel if there were you know, troops on our borders, that type of thing. I don't think it's as much as that. It's because, uh, honestly, from my point of view, it's because if Ukraine goes that way, not only does that hurt Russia economically because Ukraine is one of the primary customers for uh, petroleum and natural gas from Russia, but because that might signal, signal to other Russians that they want to diversify and democratize as well. It's a threat directly to him. Okay? And, it's, and that is, from my vantage point, what is primarily pushing him forward here. In Russia, the majority of Russians under age 24 are, do not support uh, Vladimir Putin, as best we can tell. He still remains popular among some older Russians, but that is waning. The country has not modernized its economy. It has uh, a GDP, a gross uh, domestic product, smaller than a number of European nations, even though it is a country with 11 time zones in it. Uh, it's, it's the United States uh, economic power is 25 times that of Russia. And so with what's happening with Ukraine, I think we need to look at it that way. First and foremost, what dictators worry about, and we see it time and time again in history, is they worry about themselves. They like to couch it in terms of pushing a national identity, um, creating support around this idea that everyone is against us, right? Ardent nationalists of any stripe like to do that, right? Somebody's out to get us. You sort of identify it that way. He's no, he's no different. Right? He's also 70 years old. <laughs> he cannot do this forever. <laughs> And he's been in power in some way, shape, or form for 22 years. And the country has not gone where he's wanted it to go. And he isn't just doing this out of the blue. He began this process of trying to bring Ukraine directly under heel back in 2014 when he invaded Crimea, Ukrainian territory. He's done it ever since by trying to pull 
uh, eastern sections of Ukraine that has a lot of ethnic Russians in it into Russia, fomenting a lot of problems. You might remember that um, pro-Russia uh, forces in eastern Ukraine shot down Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 uh, by accident in 2014. That was part of this same conflict. And so what he's done is something that happens historically a lot. And this is a key point that maybe I could pick up more on next week. Is what happens when dictators do these types of things is they have this seemingly ability to bring about the very things that they're trying to avoid desperately in the first place. Ukraine was not a unified nation the way we tend to think it is, the way it looks right now. Putin helped make it that way starting in 2014. Because what did they rally around? The sense of Russia once again trying to dominate them directly. If there was going to be anything that was going to unify Ukrainians beyond their own internal divisions, it was probably going to be that. And yet he did that. <laughs> he also is worried about NATO getting stronger. Well, NATO's response has been more robust to the point that they're sending weapons to the Ukrainians. And Germany, in an unprecedented move, said they're going to start spending about 2% of their GDP going forward on military preparations. Putin didn't want an expansion or a strengthening or a consolidating of NATO's opinion. But that's what he's getting. He worried about economic sanctions or worried about Russia not growing economically. Well, he's going to have a hard time doing that with all the sanctions that are landing on him and his people. So the very things he's hoping to accomplish, the things he was most terrified of happening, might actually be happening. We'll see. Now, that doesn't mean any of us should gloat. doesn't mean any of us should be excited about this because we shouldn't be. Because in the midst of this, not only are many people dying in Ukraine and Russian soldiers as well, but no one can guarantee what dictators are going to do when they increasingly feel cornered. And we could talk ourselves into whatever we'd like, but the fact is we don't really know what he might or might not do. Only he knows that. And that's part of the problem when that kind of power runs unchecked. You set yourself up potentially in situations like this for situations where what one person thinks, what one person decides to do, can take things in a direction that may or may not be good. Okay. So I'm running short on time. I am going to continue this next week. I would love to hear any questions, any comments, any ideas that you might have. I'd be willing to share them on the air. And we can continue looking at this next week. I know there's a lot to dig through here. I'm going to post uh, material on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter of what some historians I know and other commentators are saying about this and then go into much more detail if that's helpful for you. Uh, but certainly, in the meantime, know that there are a lot of things going on here. And certainly, as time goes forward, we'll get a clearer picture of what's happening and what isn't. And so in the meantime, between now and next week, when I see you on another episode of This Show is All About You, I'll tell you what I tell you every week, everyone. Chins up.